1: in running absolute genius
2: get
3: this
1: welcome
2: welcome <laughs> this is the
4: show where we bring you science some. what that essentially means is discovery advances Questions. research technology unbelievable without further ado this is the naked scientists hello welcome to the program where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science technology and medicine that's with me chris smith and with adam murphy This week, Covid
5: vaccines for kids is the side effect everyone's worried about worth worrying about. Farmers toilet train cows, plus China clamps down on kids playing computer games.
4: And also this week, we're looking into a topic that almost never gets mentioned at school, but affects almost all of us one way or another, and that's the menopause. We'll hear why it happens, when it happens, and what we can do to lessen the effects when it does. The
2: Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk.
5: This week has seen a slew of big announcements around the winter plans for COVID-19. Booster jabs for adults and the UK's chief medical officers gave their verdict on whether coronavirus vaccines should be offered to 12 to 15 year olds.
6: So overall, our assessment is combining the marginal but uh, uh, assessed benefit that JCVI made at an individual level, taking on board additionally the issues around education, our view was the benefit exceeded the risk to a sufficient degree, that we are recommending to our ministers in all four nations that they make a universal offer, and I want to stress the word offer, of vaccination to children uh, 12 to 15 in addition to the ones that have already been given it.
4: England's Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty there. One of the reasons that the JCVI, the group responsible for advising on UK vaccine policy, struggled to provide a clear recommendation on the vaccines for children, and hence referred the question back to the Chief Medical Officers, is because the vaccines carry a small risk of a side effect called myocarditis. The rate at which this occurs is not much higher than the rate that we expect to see in the general population anyway – and it occurs more often in unvaccinated people who go on to develop coronavirus infection compared with those who are protected by a vaccine. So what is myocarditis and is it a major threat for young people or are we worrying about it too much? Tricia Singh is a cardiology researcher looking at myocarditis at Edinburgh's Royal Infirmary.
7: So myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle. Usually when we see patients in hospital they usually present with most commonly chest pain breathlessness, palpitations. However, some people may not get very many symptoms at all.
4: And when people have this, does it get better? Does it get worse? Does it stay the same?
7: In most people, myocarditis does get better and your heart muscle recovers and the inflammation settles down. A very small percentage can go on to having further problems down the line, but that is a very, very small percent.
4: Do we know what causes it?
7: The most common cause of myocarditis is usually following a viral infection. Now, this can be a flu-like virus, it can be a tummy bug, skin infections. Less common causes of myocarditis can include medications. It has been noticed in vaccines, not just the COVID-19 vaccine, but also in the past we've seen it in smallpox and also influenza vaccines.
4: And can people who who catch the new coronavirus get it? Is it one of the, the consequences of coronavirus infection?
7: it is so we have seen patients who unfortunately have developed COVID-19 infection have also had cases where they've also developed myocarditis as well
4: but do we know what's actually going on if you were to look at the heart when an individual is suffering with a case of myocarditis what is actually happening that's making those symptoms and making the heart behave in that way
7: That very much depends on the cause of myocarditis. If it's, for example, viral infection related, what's happening is that all your inflammatory cells that your body normally releases when it's fighting an infection, infiltrate the heart muscle and cause inflammation in the muscle itself. And that irritation of the heart muscle is what causes the symptoms.
4: And so we think that there are some people who, when they get vaccinated, the immune response they make to the vaccine does the same thing as though they were infected with the virus for real and that in- inflammatory response spills over temporarily into the heart?
7: I think the difficulty with vaccine-related myocarditis is we're not entirely sure the process in which it causes myocarditis. And there's lots of theories. So one of them is that you know your immune system kind of goes into hyperdrive and as a result can result in uh, myocarditis.
4: It's happening to more boys than girls. Do you you think that that's a real thing? Or do you think that 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 actually is a statistical artifact? It's just that we happen to have detected more cases in males than females so far?
7: Uh, No, I think that's actually a a genuine thing. So myocarditis in general, uh, even when it's not vaccine related, is far more common in young people. And when I say young, kind of under the age of 30, and far more common in men.
4: What then are the implications for for vaccination in the context of the new coronavirus in young people? Do you think that it's happening enough that we should worry? Or do you think that it's broadly self-limiting, not really a problem, and therefore it shouldn't receive the kind of prominence it has? Are we blowing this out of proportion?
7: Uh, Majority of myocarditis is self-limiting and people have a very good prognosis down the line. I wouldn't say that we're blowing it out of proportion. But what I would say is, you know, the number of cases that we're seeing which are vaccine related, A, is very, very small. And B, I think it's a balance of risk and benefit that you get from the vaccines. And I think the benefit that we're getting from vaccines is much higher currently compared to the um, number of cases that we're seeing which are vaccine related.
4: What we have seen is that the chief medical officer said we're going to give children one dose some people are interpreting that as because the cases of myocarditis have been more common after the second dose. Is it that they're just saying one dose because we're going to see what happens after one dose we might not need to give anyone any more boosters or are they actually acting on the fact that there does appear to be this slight increase in numbers after the second dose and that's why they've taken that as a cautionary step?
7: Probably a combination of both and I think we've seen less myocarditis in general than we normally do in the last year And I suspect a lot of that is because of the effects of lockdown. You know, we haven't seen as many people with flu symptoms. And similarly, we haven't seen many people with myocarditis. And I think with giving the single vaccine in children, at least for the time being, it's probably a combination of both.
4: That's fascinating that you're saying we've actually got less myocarditis at the moment than we would expect seasonally anyway. Could uh, at least a proportion of the association with uh, apparently the vaccine and myocarditis be in fact that kids are now coming out of lockdown and they're catching the other stuff again that might be causing myocarditis it's not the vaccine at all
7: yes absolutely and i think that's why it's uh, really important you know when you are seeing uh, children or adults anyone in hospital and you know they've got myocarditis to you know make there's a good chance that they could just be having this because you know they picked up a viral infection somewhere else and the myocarditis is related to that rather than purely vaccine related
4: some very reassuring words there from trisha singh
5: And moving swiftly on now to cows. And cows these days get something of an environmentally bad rap. And that's partly thanks to the methane they produce during digestion that contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. But scientists and farmers also have a problem with something else that they generate a lot of, which is nitrogen-rich urine. And the issue is that they dispense too much of it in one go at one place. But now there might be an answer, and that is toilet training for cows. Eva Higginbotham spoke to lead author Lindsay Matthews from the University of Auckland. Cows produce
1: a lot of urine, you know, 20, 30 litres a day each.
8: Uh,
9: 20 to 30 litres a day of urine is an absolutely amazing amount. Do they just drink
8: tonnes of water?
1: Well, they do. Yes, you know, they're producing a lot of milk. They're eating a lot of food and they need to drink a lot of water. So they're drinking over 100 litres of water each a day. Uh, It has to go somewhere (laughs) and it comes out in great gushes that the soil and the plants can't handle. So the nitrate in the urine gets converted into two polluting products in outdoor settings. So you get the nitrate going through to the water and you get the nitrate in the soil getting converted to nitrous oxide, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. If you're in an indoor situation, you get the urine mixing with feces and converting immediately to ammonia, which is also a problem for the animals and the uh, environment. And so you were trying to find a solution to what to do with all of this urine? Yes, so it occurred to us that if we could collect it at source, we could deal with it in an environmentally friendly way. It could the Nutrients could be reused. They're very good nutrients. It's just not in the quantity uh, that they come out at in in, in a small area. So the idea is to collect the urine. How do we do that? Well, and the most obvious solution is to use a toilet. The only problem is that people in the past have tried to toilet tame cattle and haven't really had that much success. So this is what we were faced with as our solution. And what did you do? We we modelled the training a little bit on what you might do with a toddler, and uh, one of the one of the successful ways of toilet training toddlers is to put them on the toilet. So we had our metaphorical toilet, which was really just a a wee room, and it was obviously had to be clearly different from anything else, otherwise it would be just another part of the barn. So it was a green walls, green floor, astroturf floor, so not concrete floor, it a nice um, spongy floor. The other thing that was different about it is that if they urinated in there, they immediately got a reward. This was really the first exciting part of the training is that they made that connection between the urination and the reward so quickly. You know, some of them were in two or three urinations. They were spinning around and waiting at the the hopper for their little tasty treat of liquid molasses. Mm. Um, Others took maybe five to ten urinations, but... Regardless, most of the animals learn this phase very quickly. The other challenge in taking it to application will be the training. And we think that needs to be automated because it would take, even though it's relatively quick, you need to be there to observe the animal if you're doing it manually manually. So we would have a system for automatically detecting urinations and linking that to an automatic delivery reward. We we see that as less of a challenging part of the process.
9: It's like a robotic toilet trainer for cows. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and now that you've trained cows to use a toilet, do you think you could train them to do anything?
1: Well, within their physical capabilities, yes, they've got way more ability than a lot of people think they have and the speed of learning of this rather complex task in interrogating their own feelings and uh, bladder filling and then responding appropriately, voluntarily, controlling reflexes, that's massive and so, yeah, they've got a lot of potential.
5: A very moving report there from Eva Higginbotham and she was speaking with Lindsay Matthews and that paper on potty training for cows has just been published in the journal Current Biology.
3: From baffling British weather... The sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden.
10: Mm. The Naked Scientist's In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com short or subscribe to Naked Specials
7: wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Coming up, a nudge to eat more healthily and we're going to investigate the menopause right through from diagnosis to workplace policies that can make it a bit more tolerable. But first, the computer games
5: industry has boomed in recent decades. Worth nearly $200 billion annually, it eclipses Hollywood and is growing at nearly 10% per year. But that might be about to change in China because under 18s there are now forbidden from online games from Monday to Thursday and can spend just one hour on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays and public holidays playing. The ban, say the Chinese authorities, is designed to protect the physical and mental health of children. Chris Barrow, who presents our Naked Gaming podcast, reports.
2: It's been a difficult week for gamers. China's video game regulator has announced harsh restrictions that limit how long you can play for. Now if you're under the age of 18, you can only play for an hour on Fridays, weekends and a few select holidays between 8 and 9 o'clock in the evening. The regulator also instructed gaming companies to actively prevent children from playing outside these times after fears that they've been cheating the system by using adult IDs. It's not the first time the authorities have targeted gamers in China. Some restrictions were brought in earlier this year, but these are the most severe yet. Recently, they branded online games as Spiritual Opium, specifically mentioning a game, Honour of Kings, published by Tencent. Josh Yi is a gamer who writes for the South China Morning Post. He told me that these new restrictions weren't a surprise.
11: From a gamer's perspective, because of the tightening of the entire sort of public debate arena, they know the target is squarely at kids. Gamers do feel uh, stigmatized and demonized in many ways. So for teenagers, if you're talking about a fifteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old, they are frustrated for sure. But at the same time, that you know the general sort of belief of society is that they put a lot of pressure on kids to study, and shouldn't be you know playing as much game.
2: So what are some of the problem games in the eyes of the authorities?
11: Tencent's Honor of Kings is um, the one that got the sort of the most attention. So like that game was the one that framed as, you know, spiritual opium because it's the world's most popular game, even though unknown to most Western gamers, you know, it has, it was the first game to average 100 million daily active users. It's readily accessible from, from a mobile device. And uh, it just, you know, it became a sort of a social gathering activity among kids. Last time I checked, it made $9.6 billion since its launch. Uh, in twenty fifteen, so that's a absurd amount of money that made gaming in China has always been a bit of a cat and mouse games between you know the government and the gamers, right? So like gamers know that this is probably not something the government encourages, but then the government sees like the economic benefits as well as they are a great tool for China to really so sort of export their culture and be a medium to tell good China stories.
2: The president of Tencent, Martin Lau said in a statement, The government does recognise
0: the importance on the economic side and the social side of the internet industry and also the contribution of the industry to global competitiveness. On games, I think the key issue at this point in time is still the amount of time and the amount of money that the miners spend on games. And this is an area that we are very focused on. If that can be achieved, I think that most of the criticism on the gaming industry will be resolved.
2: So is there any evidence that gaming is addictive, Professor Andy Shabilsky from the Oxford Internet Institute has been researching this question for many years.
12: From a scientific perspective, um, there's zero support uh, for the idea that either restricting video game play to uh, certain days of the week or to uh, a certain amount, uh, a magic number, um, uh, would yield a a positive effect on on mental health, on psychological well-being, or on kind of relationships between young people and their parents. And we find in other parts of the world where where measures like this have been enacted, uh, such as in South Korea, uh, where they tried to to limit online video game play to maximize study time and and maximize sleep. Uh, We found after an eight year experiment there, uh, pretty conclusive evidence that the intervention was a failure. It's a bold move. Um, I'm sure there are some parents who are, are, are interested and whose ears perked up Um, But it's certainly not a move that's uh, supported in any way
2: by the science. Some parents will say, though, that kids are simply playing too much. Does something kind of
12: magical happen to to young people when they turn 18? Do they become, you know, able to resist the temptation of the digital world um, because, you know, a, a, a clock strikes midnight? And the answer to that is obviously no. And one thing that could have happened is you've missed years of practice, Uh, Balancing video games or or other online activities with your studies. And then you show up to university at 18, 19, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you're out on your own and you can play video games whenever you want for the first time ever. Uh, And and games companies have been researching, you know, ways of making games more uh, immersive and attractive the whole time. So it, it, it hits you like a tidal wave. It's a bit like not letting someone practice riding a bicycle. Uh, and then when they're 18, just kind of handing them uh, a U-lock and saying good luck.
2: The Chinese government hopes this move will create positive energy among young people and educate them with correct values. But with little scientific evidence to support the ban, whether it will work remains to be seen. Chris Barrow reporting there. Back to the UK and obesity is a very big
4: problem here in fact a 2020 survey in England found that almost one in three adults in our country are obese two-thirds of the population are overweight and according to the latest NHS statistics there are over a million hospital admissions where obesity was a key factor in just one year of reporting but how do we go about tackling this? Taxing unhealthy foods and beverages is being tried and banning certain items altogether is also being talked about. But in a free society, these sorts of restrictions are not, shall we say, very palatable. What about, though, if we could address the problem without most of us even realising? What, Cameron voice is wondering, if it's our environment
13: that's at fault
4: rather than us?
13: Picture this. You're tired. Hungry and want some quick food. What do you go for? Some fruit, perhaps? Or maybe a chocolate bar instead? Faced with these choices, opting for the healthy one can be hard. But what if our environment was changed just a little bit to make healthier choices easier? Could this make a difference?
14: One of the main factors that's causing this sudden rise in obesity and overweight rates are the unhealthy food environments that surround us. This includes a number of
13: things. That's James Reynolds from Aston University whose new research studied minor modifications to 19 workplace canteens. They found that swapping out a few high-calorie options with lower-calorie alternatives, say a beef burger with a chicken burger, and slightly reducing the portion sizes of the more calorific products resulted in a 12% decrease in the workers' calorie intake while at work. Importantly, these weren't sweeping changes across the whole canteen. Only some of the items were altered. But combining small changes can make a big difference.
14: This... Projects evaluated two different interventions and we found evidence that adding one to another was much more effective than intervention in isolation and there's every reason to believe that this would continue to be the case with other interventions that are combined
13: to it. Similar changes or nudges have also been looked at in supermarkets. Research from the University of Southampton and Deakin University found that a set of simple modifications like placing fresh fruit and veg by store entrances and removing confectionery from near checkouts can have a big impact resulting in around 10,000 extra portions of fruit and veg and 1,500 fewer portions of confectionery being sold per week per store. The same products were there, just in different places. Helen Brown from the Behavioural Insights team, who is not involved in the study, explained why these findings are so important.
9: First, it shows the incredible potential of supermarkets to support consumers and make healthy choices really easy, at almost no cost to their bottom line, which is obviously critical for retailers and manufacturers. I think what's most exciting, though, is that these interventions were trialled in discount supermarkets located in economically deprived neighbourhoods. Now, this is really important, as we know that obesity and poor diet is socioeconomically patterned. And so research in areas of lower income is much, much needed. And I think that's really what is very exciting about this this work.
13: But from a behavioural point of view, where does all this come from? Are we really just victims of our environments? James again.
14: There is an older view in psychology that a lot of human behaviour is entirely intention-based, that people do exactly what they intend to do all the time, and that merely by changing people's intentions to, say, eat fewer calories, that might be sufficient to help people lose weight or intend to do whatever else their goals are.
13: But, as James told me, these ideas are quickly becoming outdated, As a growing body of evidence suggests that there are so many more factors that play a role in our decision making, our environment being a prime example, as Helen explained.
9: So according to dual process models in behavioural sciences, there are two systems which drive human behaviour. The first is the reflective system. And this system is all about our rational and analytical processes. So for example, if we take lunchtime, uh, if we were using our reflective system, we would stop and think carefully about the pros and cons of all the different food options available to us. Now, obviously, using this reflective system is effortful and requires lots of cognitive resources. And so in reality, much of our behaviours are driven by the other system, our automatic system. And our automatic reactions to external cues from the physical and social environments in which we live, work and play, therefore become really critical and sometimes lead us to make unhealthy choices. Now, what's really tricky is that our reliance on this automatic system is heightened when we are tired, busy, hungry, distracted. And that's why it's so critical that our environment makes it incredibly easy, if not the default, to make the healthy choice.
13: But there is hope for the future.
9: There is a whole suite of interventions we can use to really shape the environment uh, in which we are shopping, both online and in-store, to ensure that the healthy option is absolutely the easiest, the quickest, and really uh, supports us in making good choices.
4: Well, the easy option sounds pretty good to me. That was Cameron Voicey, he was speaking to James Reynolds and also Helen Brown and both of the papers that they were talking about have just been published in the journal PLOS Medicine.
14: Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently but with over 30 years experience in telecommunications award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988.
9: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions.
5: And for the rest of the show this week, we are going to take a look at something that affects one in every two people on the planet, but almost never gets mentioned in school sex ed.
10: I was working at Channel 4. I was the head of news and current affairs and along came the menopause. And the way it affected me most was that I woke up every hour and as a result, for years, I was exhausted just exhausted all the time. And then I commissioned a programme about the menopause and discovered lots of facts about HRT, including that you can go on HRT even if you've gone through the menopause. And so I went on to HRT and it totally transformed my life. Pretty quickly, I was sleeping all night And I cannot tell you the difference between waking up every hour and sleeping all night. I just have so much more energy now and I'm so much happier. HRT has literally transformed my life.
5: That is Dorothy Byrne, now president of Murray Edwards College in Cambridge. We'll hear later in the programme how she used her own experience to set up one of the world's first workplace policies to try and help women confronting the same problems she was.
4: Indeed, the menopause is something a woman faces exclusively. Men aren't affected in the same way. The process effectively marks the end of a woman's reproductive phase in her life. So what do we know about it? Imogen Shaw is a GP with a special interest in the subject.
8: It tends to be between 45 to 55. 80% of women will have some kind of symptoms. Flushes, that feeling of rising heat, night sweats... And most women also notice a sleep disturbance. Even if they don't wake hot at night, their sleep pattern changes. Then there's the sort of more psychological symptoms that are not always so commonly known about. The sort of increased anxiety that women feel, general low mood or mood swings from irritable to tearful. There's the increase in headaches in some women. And then there's the sort of physical changes that women notice, hair loss, skin and hair drying. A very common complaint is this increased midriff weight gain. The other symptom which is very common, and I think underdiagnosed and undertreated, is genitourinary symptoms, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse, increased urinary tract infections, overactive irritable bladder with this increased frequency of needing to pass urine. Those are the sort of The main spectrum of symptoms that women notice, either all or some of?
4: Those are quite common and general symptoms and complaints, anyway. So, how would a woman disentangle it happening because she's going into the menopause from it's just one of those things? Is it the frequency with which these things happen?
8: Yes, and the pattern of symptoms, because there's no diagnostic test for the menopause, and in fact, we discourage doctors from checking hormone levels because they fluctuate so radically that the levels are inaccurate. So it is, it's is—it's a clinical diagnosis, but it's diagnosed on a pattern of those symptoms that, yes, I, and I agree they're common symptoms, but they get worse uh, and, and more persistent and more intrusive.
4: What's actually going on inside a woman, though, to make her have... Or experience these symptoms?
8: Throughout our adult life, the ovaries produce eggs, which then are released once a month and will then go on to produce a period if they're not fertilised. The ovaries have a finite number of eggs, which are determined at birth and are used up throughout our lifespan. And we then tend to run short of eggs around the age of 50, which then decreases their output of hormones including estrogen which then creates the the symptoms that i've described
4: in effect then there are responses all over the body to these hormones
8: absolutely i mean every tissue in the body has estrogen receptors so our brain uh, our our heart uh, our blood vessels musculoskeletal system breasts uterus are all estrogen responsive to a certain extent.
4: Does the body therefore have a process of getting used to a lower level of estrogen then because it's been used to seeing quite high levels when a person is not in the menopause but then once the menopause has happened and you go into this state of much lower estrogen is it that you settle down and then things become normal again for you or do people have to experience those symptoms indefinitely?
8: no in the, it's the fluctuating estrogen levels that give us symptoms and in the majority of women once they're through the menopausal transition and they've now steadied out at a much lower but stable estrogen state the symptoms disappear in about 7% of women these symptoms don't disappear and they still continue flushing well into even i've seen 90 year olds who are still flushing not usually with the same intensity as during the menopausal transition, but they do still have some mild symptoms.
4: And we're going to explain more about that as we go through the programme this week. That was Imogen Shaw. As Chris
5: said, we'll be considering some of the onward health impacts of the menopause and what we can do to prevent them next. But first, arguably, one of the key questions about the menopause is when this will happen to an individual. Knowing that would take a huge weight off many couples' shoulders because it would help them to plan better when to start a family a major determinant is down to the genes you carry, as a recent very large study published in the journal Nature has shown. Chris spoke with one of the team behind that work, Cambridge University obstetrician Catherine Aiken.
3: We looked at millions of genetic variants across hundreds of thousands of women, over 13 million places in the genome where you can have variations in your genetic code. And when we looked at how those were linked to age at menopause, we could identify nearly 300 independent signals within the genes that could explain a large amount of the variation in the age at which women were going through the menopause naturally.
4: How did you gain access to so much information about so many people?
3: These are databases available to scientists worldwide to study problems exactly like this, where you need an enormous number of people to be able to sift through so many tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces of the genetic code. The trouble is that there's so much variation naturally in the genes of different people, and so you need an awful lot of women to add together to be able to predict with any kind of accuracy when somebody would go through the menopause.
4: I see, so you've basically got a massive great group of women and you're able to ask, in this group, are there any parts of the genome that keep cropping up as different in relation to how their age at menopause changes? So you can see there's a sort of link there between that bit of the genome changing in a certain way and the age of menopause changing in the same direction each time.
3: That's right, and we find three hundred, nearly 300 different places across the genes where that is true and some of those are have a very strong effect and in other places the effect size is less but when you add up all those tiny tiny variations you find that you actually get quite a powerful effect on your age at menopause normally when we think of genetics we think of a single gene changing and that having a profound effect on whether an individual has a medical condition or not but in this case, what we find is that there's no single gene. It's a very subtle effect of lots and lots of genes added up. And that's why age at menopause has traditionally been so difficult to predict and why it's been a very, very hard to know who's going to go through the menopause at 40 and who might still be premenopausal well into their 50s.
4: I suppose what one can do is to ask, well, now you've got those regions of the genome that seem to have this influence, What do those genes in those regions of the genome do? Because if you know what the genes do, that can give you some kind of insight into what the mechanism of an earlier or a later menopause might be.
3: Yes, so that's really interesting. When we look at all those genes, a large, large number of them are connected with what's called the DNA damage response. So basically, that's the biological system that makes sure that cells are maintained In their young and healthy state, it's the body's natural repair system. The trouble is that when the body's natural repair system isn't working so well, then that has a profound effect on the ovary. As we already heard, the eggs in the ovary are set before birth, and so it's even more important for eggs than other cells that they are well-maintained and that the cells around them that support them are well-maintained in terms of constantly repairing any damage because those cells have been in the ovaries for so long, over 40 years in most cases. And so these genetic variants that we find are mainly to do with how well you can maintain and repair all the cells that support your eggs in your ovaries, which mean that they last longer if you carry certain variants in those genes compared to others
4: and if you know what those variants are and you know that some seem to associate with better dna repair and therefore longer lived eggs and some seem to associate with a less powerful dna repair process and therefore eggs that might wear out more quickly does this mean we we are now approaching a stage where we can make some kind of prediction about who might be at risk of an earlier menopause or even roughly when that menopause might happen
3: We're not quite there yet, so we are absolutely approaching that, and certainly this recent study gets us a whole big step closer to that. Before we did this study, we thought we knew about 15% of what contributed to somebody's age at menopause. This has taken us up to closer to 40%. It's still not good enough to use in a clinical setting for an individual person. If it explains 40%,
4: what's the other 60%?
3: So there are probably genetic variants that we haven't found yet. We also know that there are lifestyle factors. Alcohol consumption and tobacco smoking affect age at menopause. Those will all be additive and what we'll find is that there are certain things interact with certain genetic variants. So smoking may be particularly bad for people who carry particular genetic links.
4: One other thing I'd like to pick up with you. In this study, because you were finding genes that are linked to DNA damage and repair, and there are other diseases which are really profoundly tied up with DNA damage and repair, but also linked to hormones, I'm thinking, for example, some of the cancers, especially things like breast cancer. Was there any associations that you found in this study, in terms of age of menopause and risk of those sorts of conditions?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the amount of data that we had, um, the biobanks that we use are extremely well characterised. What we were able to do was then go back and look at women who had different combinations of genes and what their other health outcomes were. Um, And that's really interesting to us because what we find was very strong associations between genetic patterns that predicted early menopause and genetic patterns that predict other diseases. So what we found was that for women whose age at natural menopause was predicted to be later, their risk of several types of cancer increased. And those are the particular types of cancer that we know are linked to hormones. Um, And so that really was exciting for us because it validates that connection between the genetic pathways that are causing um, age at menopause and how that interacts with a woman's health globally. Um, So her risk of breast cancer, her risk of ovarian cancer, and then other things like type 2 diabetes and so on that are clearly bind up not only with genetics, but also with the hormonal effects of the menopause and so on.
4: Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Catherine Aiken there. Still to come, do frogs get itchy? Before we... Hop to that though, we are discussing the menopause this week. So far, we've looked at the symptoms and when this tends to happen, and also, as we were just hearing, how genes probably play a role. Well, now we're going to turn to the skeleton because without the bone strengthening effects of estrogen, fractures are much more common in postmenopausal women. And with us to explain why. And how we can monitor this, and perhaps most importantly, what we can do about it, is Juliet Compston. She's the Emeritus Professor of Bone Medicine at the University of Cambridge. Juliet, to what extent is a woman's fracture risk increased after menopause?
15: It's hugely increased. So uh, at the age of 50, one in two women could expect to have at least one fracture during their remaining lifetime.
4: That's a lot. So how does that compare with a man then?
15: men it's still quite common in men but less so so about 1 in 5 men
4: and we think that this is down to the loss of estrogen that occurs when a person goes through the menopause
15: it's partly due to that um both in men and women bone loss occurs around the age of 40 and continues throughout life. So uh, it's not only due to oestrogen, it's due to many other factors. But in women, during the menopause, there is an acceleration in the rate of bone loss, which is due to oestrogen deficiency. And that um, is one reason why the risk in women of having a fracture later in life is greater than in men.
4: How can you therefore spot who might be one of those one in two women?
15: Well, we know there are a number of risk factors which um, increase your risk of fracture. One is age, which obviously you can't do anything about apart from be aware that uh, that the risk of fracture becomes increasingly great as you age. Um, If you've had a previous fracture, that is a very strong risk factor for having a subsequent fracture and should alert you and your GP to discuss being tested. And then there are other factors such as um, steroids, which are used in the treatment of many diseases, which increase your risk of fracture. Things like um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, other diseases which uh, have an independent effect on fracture risk. If you have a family history, um, that is a strong risk factor, particularly if you have a parent who suffered a hip fracture. And then there are other risk factors like um, heavy smoking, um, alcohol abuse, and body weight is very important. If if you have a low BMI, you're at increased risk of fracture. Also, actually, if you're obese, uh, you also have an increased risk of fracture.
4: What about exercise? Because we're often told that, you know, it's very hard to say how beneficial exercise is. That's loading your skeleton quite a lot, isn't it? Does that have a beneficial effect?
15: Yes, exercise is is definitely good for the skeleton Um, and we know that particularly in in young people, exercise can actually increase the size of your bones as well as their um, mineral content and their strength. Whether exercise can reduce fractures in later life is slightly less certain. It can certainly increase your bone mass to some extent but whether it's um, effective enough to reduce fracture risk hasn't yet been proven.
4: If someone presents to you with the sort of track record that you've just been outlining of risk factors, how do you investigate them?
15: If they have um, one or more of the risk factors I've outlined, and particularly if, if, let's say, they're over the age of 50, um, whether a man or a woman, then um, I would, first of all, uh, do something called FRAX, which is a a free fracture risk algorithm on the internet, which gives you a 10-year probability of fracture. And if that is um, very high, then they probably are already um, indicated to have treatment. And if it's intermediate, you can do a test called a DEXA scan Uh, which is a very simple test. It just involves lying on a couch for 10 to 15 minutes. There's no tunnel or anything. There's just a slim bar that goes over your body that will actually give a measure of the amount of bone mineral in your spine and in your hip.
4: If it turns out someone's in the danger zone, having had these sorts of investigations, what can we do medically to try to reduce the risk of a person having a fracture?
15: Well, we always start off by um, advising lifestyle measures, um, and they're the, the usual suspects. So um, stop smoking, don't drink too much alcohol, um, have a good balanced diet. Vitamin D we believe is, it's important to have enough vitamin D um, through sunlight exposure where that's possible. And and also um, physical activity where as, as appropriate to the patient. But um, in terms of pharmacological interventions, we have a really effective range of um, treatments which have been shown to reduce fracture risk. And these basically um, are divided into drugs which stop bone being removed excessively from the skeleton. And the most uh, well-known of these are the bisphosphonates, but hormone replacement therapy, HRT, which of course contains estrogen, also acts in the same way. And then we also have um, a newer group of bone forming agents, which actually stimulate bone formation, um, which can also be used.
4: And are these any good?
15: They are very good. They reduce fractures in the spine, the hip and elsewhere in the body.
4: Which is good news. Thank you very much, Juliet. That's Juliet Comston, the Emeritus Professor of Biomedicine at the University of Cambridge. Adam. So far, we've heard about the sorts of symptoms the menopause may produce, how genes
5: can influence the age at which this happens, and as we've just been hearing, some of the other health consequences of lower estrogen levels like osteoporosis. Now we're going to consider what we can do to combat some of these issues and here to help us do that is gynecologist and founder of Menopause Matters, Heather Curry. So Heather, what options are available for women beginning to experience the menopause?
16: The first option, which all women need to know about and can continue addressing, are diet and lifestyle issues. And as we heard from Juliet, this can have a, an impact on bone health, but also cutting down smoking, cutting down alcohol, um, cutting down caffeine, maintaining a healthy diet and plenty of exercise, can also help those early menopausal symptoms that we heard Imogen talk about. In practice, though, many women may be really struggling with symptoms and may not be in the right mindset to change their diet and lifestyle. And often we do need to help them get symptoms under control, but then continue to advise and encourage about the diet and lifestyle changes. The most effective treatment is hormone replacement therapy. And it really does what it says on the tin. It replaces the hormone. We've heard that the consequences of menopause, both the early symptoms, the intermediate symptoms, which are related to vagina and bladder problems, and also long-term symptoms, such as changes in bone health, are all due to our lack of oestrogen. And therefore, what HRT aims to do is give the oestrogen back. There are many ways that oestrogen can be taken. It can be taken in a daily tablet, a twice-weekly patch, a weekly patch, a daily gel that you apply um, to your thighs or to your arms, and a spray, which is a a newest um, option, which you can apply to your arm. So the main part is oestrogen, and as we've heard, there's oestrogen effects throughout the body, and when it gets into the circulation, it goes around the body and helps those effects that we've heard about. Unless someone has had their womb removed, i.e. had a hysterectomy, then the other hormone that's involved is progestogen. So this is needed to prevent estrogen stimulating the lining of the womb which if went on for long enough could increase the risk of thickening of the lining and in fact endometrial cancer. But we have ways of combining the progesterone which can be really simple such as within the daily tablet or within a a patch or can be taken as a separate option along with your separate oestrogen. So there's lots of options to think about and it's really important that women take time to get the information and find out what's going to be best for them.
5: And when we're talking about any kind of treatment any kind of therapy there are side effects as Catherine mentioned you know there's there's a higher risk of breast cancer if the hormones stay in the system longer does that kind of thing apply here to HRT as well?
16: There is an association with a small increased risk of breast cancer um, in certain types of HRT. So if, if a woman is able to take the estrogen only, as I said, that's only relevant if she's had a hysterectomy, had the womb removed, then there seems to be little or no risk of an increased risk of breast cancer. However, If the estrogen is combined with progesterone, then certain types of HRT taken for more than five years after the age of 50 may be associated with a stimulation of breast cancer cells that's already present, not actually causing the breast cells to turn into cancer so perception of risk is really important and really complicated so if one woman is having minimal menopausal symptoms and knows of someone close to her who had breast cancer then she's going to be more concerned about the breast cancer risk than the benefits from hrt whereas another woman who doesn't have any sort of close history of breast cancer and is having significant symptoms then for her there's going to be far more benefits by taking hrt But overall, for the majority of women under the age of 60 or within 10 years of the menopause who are having menopausal symptoms and may have risk factors for bone health or may just have the risk factors for bone health, the benefits of HRT far outweigh the risks.
5: Absolutely. Now, Heather, at the start of the programme, we also heard Dorothy Byrne talking about her menopause symptoms earlier. She's also helped to introduce one of the first workplace policies when she was at Channel 4. Let's just hear what all that was about.
10: A lot of what a menopause policy is about is drawing together all the other policies that already exist. So it's not about a company spending lots of money. A lot of managers don't know anything about the menopause. So the first thing is to inform everybody about how severe the effects of the menopause can be. About a quarter of women suffer really significant problems, which often make them feel like giving up work. Secondly, it's to explain to women themselves, if you feel ill because of the menopause, you feel ill. So just as you wouldn't go to work or you might come in a bit late if you felt really ill for another reason, it's fine to take time off because you feel really ill about the menopause. And then the third part of it is that we brought in doctors to explain the menopause to women and to tell them the facts about HRT. A lot of GPs don't know much about the menopause and give women the wrong information and tell them they just have to put up with it. So most of the policy is, in fact, about education and it also makes older women feel valued. You know, we are wanted round here. So I think it gives a very important message in that way, too.
5: So, Heather, what do you think of that? Do you think that that kind of thinking is a good idea, practical to introduce across the board?
10: Yeah, it's
16: absolutely fantastic. And we are hearing more and more organisations that are developing menopause frameworks and policy. And as was described, it's really just about giving information both to the women and their families and the people that they work with and anyone that is around them so they can have a better understanding of, of what's going through and what the options are.
5: And then what other sorts of support or non-pharmacological measures are available? I'm thinking sort of, you know, like the psychological end of things it's it's a massive change
16: it is a massive change and actually what has also been shown to help menopausal symptoms particularly the disturbed sleep that we've heard about that can have a huge impact um the flushes to some extent and also the mood changes is cognitive behavioral therapy and that's been shown to be really really helpful to help women just just deal with what's happening to them the most important thing in all of this as we've referred to a little bit through the program is the information, the education that needs to start from school. Women are well prepared for, or girls prepared for periods, for contraception, for pregnancy, and but we need them from a very early age to understand what's going to happen and, and what to look out for, because often with women, they are not prepared, particularly for the mood symptoms. And often this goes on for a while, as we've heard already, before it's actually recognized to be hormonally related.
5: And then for anyone listening who, who might be going through the menopause or starting to, what advice would you have for that person?
16: Don't dread it, first of all. We do hear lots of awful stories, and some women are severely affected by the symptoms. It can have a huge impact on their life, but that isn't for everyone. It's being forearmed, it's been it's been Uh, having access to accurate information so they know what to look for. They know that HRT is an option, not seeing it as something you shouldn't mention, but something that you want to talk about. So it's a natural phase, absolutely. But it can have a big impact on our symptoms, on our bone health and also on our heart health. So it's being prepared to deal with it in in the way that suits each woman. There isn't a blanket approach. There isn't one method or treatment that suits everyone. It's finding the information, seeking support and individualising. That's the key.
4: Heather Curry, thanks very much. So what have we learned? Well, probably the most striking thing for me was that it was the point that this is not something which is in school sex education classes which heavily dwell on things like menstrual cycles and things like reproduction and contraception. Yet this is a really important, really fundamental part of life for everybody because women experience the menopause but so do the partners of those women and they matter as well. I think we've given you a very broad range of of perspectives here with what to look out for what to do about it if this affects you how it can affect the body but also the key message that heather was i think keen to emphasize there that actually this is not something to worry about this is something that we can do something about and there is plenty thankfully that these days we can do adam absolutely now to finish this week
5: let's change tack And wrap up as we like to do with our question of the week. And this is an itchy one from Margaret.
15: Science has now identified actual nerve endings that humans and other mammals have that transmit itchy feelings to the brain. Do snakes or amphibians have these same nerve types? Have frogs been seen scratching an itch?
2: After scratching round for answers, I stumbled across Gerard Schlosser from the National University of Ireland Galway.
6: I sure hop, he knows the answer. The truth is that the itch has only been studied in humans and a handful of other mammals. We all know it as a rather unpleasant sensation. And just like pain, it actually acts as a warning signal, alerting us to dangerous conditions. The want to scratch can be quite beneficial, helping to remove objects that cause irritation. So through evolution, our perception of the itch has probably allowed us to defend ourselves from bugs, weeds and germs that attack our skin. We perceive the itch with sensory nerve cells that spread into the skin, and it's here where they form free nerve endings. Apart from sensory cells that respond to touch or to temperature, there are those that are activated by tissue damage, which we perceive as pain, and those that react to skin irritation, encouraging the individual to scratch. Most subtypes of sensory cells, including the ones responding to itch, are present not only in humans but also in other mammals. We have all seen horses and dogs rubbing their backs and sides against an object to remove annoying flies or ticks. But these multiple subtypes of sensory nerve cells are also found in other vertebrate animals, that is, animals with a backbone, such as fish or frogs.
2: In short, we don't know for sure whether or not any of them feel the same itch sensation that we experience, but we might be able to make an educated guess. After all, many
6: vertebrate animals are known to scratch or rub themselves when their skin is irritated. A recent study even found sensory cells in zebrafish that carry the same receptor molecules on their surface as human itch receptors. This suggests that fish, like mammals, can perceive it. They do get itchy. And because itch receptors are widespread invertebrates, we can assume that they originated in their common ancestor. An ancestor that passed the same itch down to frogs as it did to zebrafish. So I think it's safe to say that, although more research is needed, frogs get the urge to scratch their itches just like us.
2: Now, all I can think about is that one point right in the centre of my back that I can't reach. I am sure you know exactly the patch I'm talking about. Next week, we'll be on the hunt for more answers with this question sent in
11: by Rick. Why do we acquire lifelong immunity against some pathogens but not others?
4: And there we must park it for this week. But next time, it's your science questions that are going under the microscope. We'll have with us a climate scientist with the hot news on global warming and an engineer who says it's only a matter of time before we are injecting chemicals into the atmosphere to control global temperatures. We don't mean CO2 either. That and the researcher who scours nature for plant-based remedies to all our ills. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education... It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.